Welcome to This BIPOC Life, TBL. I am your host, Danielle Harrison, traveling teacher extraordinaire. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in. If you're joining us for the first time, let me introduce you to our show. This BIPOC Life is a podcast about the everyday lives of people who identify as Black, Indigenous, or people of color. For the next several episodes, I'll be chatting with fellow BIPOC English language teachers who will talk about their experiences teaching English here in the U.S., and overseas. We will also chat about our time in the English language program. Today's special guest is Natasha Agarwal. Uh, folks, our special guest is Natasha, as I said. She is an English language fellow alumni, and today she'll speak with us about her experience as a fellow in Egypt. But before we get into that, Natasha, can you share with us a bit about your background? Okay, Daniel, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Uh, it, is, it is an absolute honor to be here with you. Um, wish we could be together in person to talk about this, as we once were in Washington, D.C. <laughs> yeah, same. Um, but yes, I uh, was born and I finished my graduate studies in India. I lived in Delhi, a New Delhi, the capital city. Uh, for most of my life, but I traveled a lot within India also because uh, my dad was in the Air Force and every few years we would move and uh, every few years I would have to learn a new language because in India every state has its own language. Um, So I grew up uh, traveling a lot, um, learning a lot of languages and changing schools a lot. So that was (laughs) my childhood and uh, I came here with my husband, way back in 1990. Uh, I first lived in California and um, didn't know what to do with myself for a while until uh, I had kids and I got really interested in their um, schooling and the way education, um, the way I saw education here was so different from the way I had been raised and the schools that I had been to. So uh, that's where my ESL journey began. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's my background. Okay, um, that's an interesting start. So what was the difference that you noticed between the education in India that you had experienced and the education here? I think one of the first things I noticed when my kids were young uh, was that they seemed to have a very friendly relationship with their teachers. And they would tell me things like, oh, my teacher said this and my teacher said that. And um uh, I always remembered my teachers as more formal. It was a much more formal relationship. We did we listened to what the teacher said, and she was authority. She or he, you know, was authority, and we didn't question it. And there was there's a kind of respect that's given to the teacher, which means you don't talk back, you don't question anything they say. And here it was much more relaxed. It was more like being friends almost, and it was very intriguing for me. Point. Wow, that's really interesting because it seems like I had that experience when I went to Brazil. Uh-huh. I thought that they, and they expressed that, the teachers expressed that, that you should be your student's friend. And I thought, no uh-huh. way. <laughs> I'm not their friend. I'm their teacher. So I thought, okay, well, they were way too much, way too relaxed. Even though that's, that's amazing. So you were um, a military kid. Yes, I was. <laughs> yes, uh, my dad was in the Air Force, so 
yeah, my experience of the Air Force was just every two years we just packed and moved, you know, and that was normal for me. Right. So, uh-huh. wow. so how many languages do you speak? Well, I understand a lot of Indian languages. So my mother tongue, as we call it, is Marathi, um, which is spoken in the Mumbai area, you know, the, the state of Maharashtra. And then my mom grew up in Gujarat, so every summer we used to go to Baroda, which so I picked up a lot of Gujarati, and you know my grandparents would speak both Marathi and Gujarati. But then I also lived in Delhi a lot, where you hear a lot of Punjabi and Urdu, and couple of postings my dad had was uh, like uh, in Calcutta, so I picked up Bengali. So yeah, the the North Indian languages more or less I can understand quite a bit. Um, the South Indian languages I cannot. They are very different, and the script is different, so I can't even read them. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Well, with with having such a um, eclectic, I guess, linguistic background, how did that inform your teaching of language? To be very honest, when I first. Uh, I came to New Jersey and I went back to school here when my children were a little bit older and I thought, oh, you know, ESL certification sounds like the way to go. And I was sitting in these grad classes and the professors were explaining all these theories of language learning and, you know, what Krashen said and so many other famous theorists about language learning. And I I was very confused because I I just kept thinking back to my childhood and I said, I just picked up languages like wherever I went and why do they have to be so many theories and so much research you just put a immerse a kid in a language and they learn because that was my personal experience and I just couldn't understand the fuss about learning a language and I think that there is more research here in the U.S. because they believe more in being monolingual here rather than most of the world is mostly bilingual, trilingual, and other languages, you know. But here it's like English only, learn English, so it's a different mindset. So I guess that people have to research on how to learn and teach another language, while in other countries you just you just learn just by being there. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. The fact that um, although there are people who speak multiple languages here. And I guess, uh-huh. I guess pockets around the country. Right. Um, the overall overall idea, I guess, in education is, and because English is a dominant language here. Yeah, I guess so. You, I guess the the researchers would be, oh, okay. So how do you do this? It would be different if we were in a country like India or uh, on the continent of Africa and the many countries there, or even in Europe. Um, where people speak multiple languages because of, right. know, of their um, boundary, the boundaries, the country next door, you normally pick up the language of the country next door. Exactly, but, um, yeah. yeah. There, we have Canada, which, you know, the part that touches the United States is mostly English-speaking. You go up a little bit and, and out a little bit, there's French language, but still mostly English-speaking that way. Um, up north, right. and then down south, there's you know Spanish, but still along the border, there's that mix between okay, they're English speaking and Spanish speaking. So, hmm. uh-huh. yeah, I can see that having a big impact on uh, the way we think about yeah. language. When I was an undergrad, uh, I went to uh, I studied English literature, but uh, I took Spanish as well. So I took Spanish um, as a minor, and I was I really didn't get to use 
spent so much in India. But when I came here to New Jersey and I started teaching in uh, New Jersey, all my students are Spanish speaking. So uh, it really comes in handy. So I think languages are so important and just so nice to be able to connect with people, even with a word or a phrase. It's so important. Yeah, yeah. I get that too. Yeah. Uh, so, well, speaking of teaching, are you are you teaching now? How has this COVID situation impacted you? So, yes, I have taught in the Trenton School District for the last 13 years. And um, this is the first year that we are completely virtual. So, I almost feel like a first-year teacher all over again. Oh, man. And, yes, I have not met any of my students in person. I see them online. And it's... You know, I think my whole thing about teaching is relationships and having warm relationships in the classroom with the students. And like I said, you know, that's what really pulled me into education because I saw the kind of relationships my own children had with their teachers. Mm. Okay. Because we're online and there are screens separating us and distance separating us, I'm just finding it so much harder. Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, I'm using yeah. myself to try to take an online course for learning how to teach online. Because I, I, I can't say that I like the idea of trying to teach language virtually. Um, I'm, I'm with you. It's it's more of a personal thing, and the computer screen makes it too impersonal. Um, exactly, yeah. How is it affecting your students? Have you noticed? Um, so... My students in my last 13 years in New Jersey, they never want to miss my class. You know, that's the kind of relationship I've always had with my students. They, they might complain about other classes, but they never miss my class. And for me to see that kids don't come to my class now just because they don't feel like clicking on my link, that's like heartbreaking for me. Oh, you know? wow. <laughs> it's like, how can they not want to come to me, you know? Oh, it's man. very difficult. But, you know, it's so out of our control. It is. And you just cannot create that kind of atmosphere online that you can face-to-face. And it's, it's hard to read expressions. You you know, there's no body language to, to see. Um, you know, when we're speaking different languages and then I'm trying to do vocabulary, like, there's no board that I can show them. Like I can't, I can't display three different things at the same time. You know, I have to show them one thing, then take it off, then show something else, then take it off. Right. You know, in the classroom, you can have a chart, you can have a poster, you can have your whiteboard. You know, you can show them how to create sentences out of words that are you've already written. But that kind of, of flow is just not there. It's it's a lot of tabs and it's a lot of multitasking. It's, yeah, I have like three screens open in front of me. I'm trying to figure out, you know, what's my next class and where do I click. And I'm sure it's, it's just as hard for the students, right, if not harder. Yeah. Um, what do you see for the future of language teaching with this, um, this COVID situation and how everything is being put online? What, what do you think is going to happen in the next six, ten months? Well, I think uh, as a teacher, I think I'm going to get better at it, you know, because as you keep doing something and you want to get better, you will. And even I'm already better since I was in September. Um, I hope the students will get better at it. 
you know, um, I hope that we will be able to make our lessons more engaging so that we can have that kind of student participation and engagement that we've experienced in person. But I do think that if we continue virtual, maybe all for the rest of the year, like we are just not going to have those relationships that we always experience and that those rewards as a teacher you know you have to sometimes there are just moments you know a child says something or does something or I hear my newcomer says a sentence in English for the first time yeah and I, and I say you know hey did you notice you said a whole sentence and they're like oh I didn't even realize that you know because yeah, so we I'm not having those joyful moments you know so that's that's what is difficult. But I hope that it will change. But I also, you know, on, on the other hand, I, I wonder if education will really change dramatically in some way. Because the way we have it set up now, it's so flawed in some ways because it's all based on testing, on assessments, you know. Yeah. And we put our children through so many assessments just because they want the data. And we really don't have time to see the whole child, you know, we want to, and it's all there, you know, we have the language, social, emotional, and whole child and all, but honestly, there's no time to do all that, because we have so many tests to administer. That is so true. Huh. So I'm hoping that this changes, like this brings um, light to the fact that we do need more time to play for social development, for emotional development, you know, all these kind of things. I hope that it will taken a little more seriously right and i was going to ask but what's the silver lining and you just gave it to me maybe this will be the silver lining in all of this that uh -huh. that recognition we need to do something different well something um, different yeah, yeah definitely because you know and also I, feel, I, I wonder about our role as language teachers because now children can just put things into google translate and they have things in a different language like they're doing it to me right now yeah you know? yes, and i ask them I say, hi, how did you write that sentence? And I'm thinking in my own mind, oh, maybe I misplaced this child. Maybe this child should be in a different group or, you know, a higher level text or something. And she'll tell me, I just put it in Google Translate. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. So I think we have to really rethink our role as educators because we are not the font of knowledge anymore. It's no, the so internet, true. you no, know. Yeah. 
what are we going to teach them? You know, that's true. What is the thing teaching? You know, so that's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. If we have software already there, then what are we doing? <laughs> we we give the other stuff. I guess the emotional <laughs> connection. Right. <laughs> the connotation that can't be yes. derived from the written text, or even just you know. Exactly. That's what we yeah. do. Oh my gosh, we can't we can't be obsolete. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course not. We can be, yeah. but then how do we transform that education to become very meaningful? You know, yeah. by using all these tools. Right. I'm I'm yeah. one person I think who I know. I don't think I know. I kind of fight against it. Uh-huh. I fight against the the. I, I tell my in fact I tell my students look. I know you guys think this is the easy way out, but do not use Google Translate. Because uh-huh. what they do is they'll, Google Translate, I find, so maybe it's gotten better, but I find uh-huh. that it's nice for translating a few sentences, or, you know, certainly one sentence perfectly, and it makes sense. Right. So when my students put in a whole paragraph that they've written in their native language, and they try to have Google Translate translated, it's horrible. Yeah. And I can always tell. So yes. I want the fights against that. But like you're saying, you know, it's, you know, more and more, um, it's probably something that I'm going to have to not completely give into, but find a way to actually integrate that into my exactly. lessons. Exactly. Yes. Yes. How do we integrate those into our lessons and make our lessons even more meaningful? Yeah. Yes, that's what I feel. So what more relevant? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What grade uh, level do you teach? This year I have fifth grade, but uh, I teach elementary. So over the years I've taught every. I've taught from preschool to fifth to high school to adult. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I went from teaching second grade to teaching like uh, the professors at Al Azhar in Cairo. So it was a big jump for my brain. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> language fellow program English language program um, what made okay. you apply for to be a fellow so when I applied I had previously applied for another fellowship uh, it was called teachers for global classrooms and that was uh, I had gotten that and that was uh, spending a month in Morocco Ooh. so I had done that the year before yeah um, and before that, I had applied for other scholarships, which I had received, like, just within the U.S., so I had done a fair bit of traveling already, and when, when I finished the one in Morocco, they talked about this, and they talked about being a fellow, and uh, I had met the Rilo also, and he had said, yeah, why don't you apply? But then when, every time I looked at the application, it said, you know, you've got to be out for 10 months, and I was like, how can I just leave everything for 10 months, you know, I have kids, I have a husband, I have a home, I have my job, they're not going to let me go for a whole year, but, I mean, once I applied, things just started coming together, you know, I had my couple of interviews, and they told me they'd accepted me, and all the documents started coming in, and I told my husband, I said, this is real, this is happening now, (laughs) you know, but he was wonderful, he supported me a lot, and, um, that's how it came about. And yeah, yeah, it was probably one of the best experiences I've had again, you know. Really? Wow. So, what about that experience? How was the experience in Egypt? So, um, 
when I went to Cairo, it felt a lot like being back in New Delhi, you know. And part of me just felt like I'm home. It was. It, I didn't feel like a stranger or foreigner, apart from the fact that I didn't know any Arabic <laughs> and I couldn't talk to anyone. The feel, you know, the, every place has a feeling. Yeah. And the feeling, the heat, you know, the the way the sun shone, the the smells. The people, you know, the, the this color of their skin, like, that was, to me, it was like, I'm home. Like, I'm part of this. So, I, that part of me didn't feel foreign at all. Um, it's only when I opened my mouth that people knew, and even they thought I was I was Egyptian. I mean, most of the time, people didn't notice me there as somebody different because I looked like them. Yeah. And that, that was a very nice feeling. Like, here... I don't always get that feeling. Here, sometimes I feel like I stand out. But there, it was like, yeah, you're just part of this big, beautiful, you know, diverse culture here, and you fit in perfectly. And so that made me very comfortable. And um, the interesting thing was that every time I took a taxi or I went into a store, they would just start talking to me in Arabic, and then I would have to tell them, like, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're saying, but this is what I need. And I, I would use Google Translate and I would pull up my phone or you'd pull up a picture or something and I'd say, yeah. I need this bottle of water or I need this tea or, you know, and that's how I communicated. But everybody thought I was Egyptian. So that, there was something very comforting about that. I liked it. Yeah. And how did they react when they realized, oh, wait, she's not Egyptian? <laughs> so then the next question would be like, if you're not Egyptian, are you Indian? You know? oh. and they would say Hind, Hind, you know. And I would say yes, Hind, like I would say Indian because that was the obvious connection, you know. And I didn't want to then go into a long explanation. You know, I'm here from America, I'm here teaching English, I didn't want to go into that. It, it depended on who the person was. Right. If it was just, uh, you know, the, a taxi driver or if I was just there for some groceries, then I would say yes, Hind, and they, then they would go into like, Oh, we love Indian movies, and we love Amitabh Bachchan, and we love Karina Kapoor. Like they have, they have their favorites. They really enjoy Indian movies there. Mm-hmm. So that was something nice to see. Like immediately, they would try to connect with me. You know, so that was very yeah. sweet. I like that. Mm-hmm. So you said earlier that um, you went from teaching primary school <laughs> to teaching uh, professors <laughs> in university. What was that like? Yes. Yes, so uh, the Reno office actually runs an English language center, uh, and it's it's in collaboration with Al Azhar University, which is like the oldest Islamic university in the world, uh, almost the oldest. So they teach religion there, um, and my students were actually the professor who teach religion or other subjects in the university. They were trying to better their English, oh. and so they were my students. So, yes, literally I went from second graders, third graders, fourth graders, and fifth graders to professors. So, my brain really had to, like, jump and think about things that were appropriate for them and what their needs were, because obviously the needs were so different. They were professors who wanted to apply for Fulbright scholarships to come here. So, they wanted to know how to write a personal, like, essays and applications and, you know, things like that. And I had not really taught that before, so I just had to research it a bit and figure it out, and it went well. I really enjoyed teaching them. It was very nice. And I felt that 
um, being the way I look, I think my connections were very quick and they didn't feel like I was a foreigner and they connected with me because I told them I come from New Delhi, you know, which is a city very much like Cairo and this feels like home to me except, you know, I have never lived in an Islamic culture. And uh, that's the only difference. And they would help me out. You know, they would help me out crossing streets. They would help me out hailing taxis. Um, if I had groceries to buy, somebody would say, okay, let me come with you and, you know, buy you the water or whatever you need. Right. They were wonderful. I mean, both my students, my colleagues, everybody. I can't say enough about that experience. Wow. Um, I remember your, your story. That you for the storytelling session that you uh, you gave and you talked yeah. about your student Faith. It was that is that her name? Yes. Faith? Yeah. Iman. Yeah. Iman. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really lo- lovely story, and uh, I can tell from that that you had a good relationship with um, your students and the people. Very there. warm people. Yeah, they were just so warm. You know, everybody's very happy to help, and even if they don't know any other phrase and. English, they definitely know welcome to Egypt. So in every street corner, you'll hear somebody saying, welcome to Egypt, welcome to Egypt. (laughs) It's so so sweet. I feel very much part of the culture here, and I felt very comfortable there too. I guess it's, I don't know, maybe I adjust really quickly. I'm not sure what it is. Well, I can imagine that, because I know I do. I adapt very quickly to wherever I am. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, give me two weeks and I'm, I'm fine. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right. I have my bearings and um, I know how to navigate my life from that point mm. after two weeks. There you go. Yeah. Um. So the premise of this show, or part of it anyway, I know it's going to evolve beyond, uh, you know, these foundations. But one of the re- reasons we wanted to do it, and I wanted to do it, um, was because we wanted to highlight. You know, BIPOC English language teachers in the English in the English language fellow program, and to encourage people to actually apply. Mm-hmm. So I had more than one experience, and and the teachers of Glo- for global um, classrooms, and also mm-hmm. um, the uh, English language program. Mm-hmm. Do you find that those programs um, are diverse as far as the the people who they recruit to uh, participate? Do I think they are diverse? Um, to some extent. <laughs> um, I guess to some extent. I guess um, I think in, in our cohort that went to North Africa, I mean, I was the only one in Egypt, but then Morocco and Algeria and Tunisia, they had a lot of different fellows and I think that was a pretty mixed and diverse group. Um, I'm not so sure about TGC. I don't remember a lot of diversity in TGC. But I think the fellows program was, uh, you know, I can't say what percent of people were of color or not. uh, But I mean, I think I met all kinds of people, even even in Washington, D.C., when we were there together. Right. So it was quite interesting. I think it was, yeah, I think it was fairly diverse. It, I guess it could be more diverse, you know. I'm sure it's... The Africa Fellows, 
I thought my particular group, and that was, you know, South, um, Sub-Saharan Africa region, was uh-huh. pretty diverse. But then when I went back and I looked at, again, and I also thought, oh, at D.C., oh, so many different kind of people, yeah. backgrounds, this is great. Yeah. Uh, but then when it was broken down, I guess, into sections, and I went and on the COP, and I was looking at uh, different fellows, and I saw, oh, wow, so my section was really diverse. But maybe uh. not, not so much so in others. And uh, so the question I posed, because... There are so many um, language teachers, English language teachers of various backgrounds. I Uh find it really odd um, when there isn't natural diversity. Uh Because I think it should just be organic because there are so many many of us. Um, And it's the same when you look at the TESOL program. TESOL International, that organization, extremely, Uh extremely diverse. For me, there's no way you couldn't have a diverse um, uh, board of directors because uh-huh. there's so many of us from so many different backgrounds. Uh, uh-huh. But then it doesn't always it doesn't really it doesn't reflect that all the time. And then and people they're making changes, I guess. Um, so my question to you would be: If the diversity doesn't exist, or the way these programs um, look, I guess, to the outside doesn't reflect the, the um, really the plethora of English language teachers and educators out there. What do you think the problem is? Well, it's hard to pinpoint the problem, isn't it? Um, uh, it may be that, you know, a lot of teachers can't just leave for 10 months. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that is, that is, that was like my concern, you know. And I kept thinking to myself, if this is three months, four months, even six months, I could do it. But 10 months, like how do you just go away for 10 months? When, especially if you have family and, you know, jobs and everything. You're not sure if you can get a whole year off like that. I think that would be one issue. Mm-hmm. And it might be harder for some communities, like I would say for my community. Like my friends who are Indian here, they couldn't believe it. They were like, what? How can you just go away for a whole year? That, that's not done. Women don't do these kind of things, you know? Oh. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I can say that from my background. So I was kind of different. And I was like, my husband was okay with it. And I was like, I have to do this. <laughs> I have to go away and experience something on my own. Uh-huh. Um, so that could be an issue, mm-hmm. you know, Yeah. to definitely. just pick up and leave for, for 10 months. Um, apart from that, it could be like, even just the fear of the unknown, like, you know, just to go away and not know how things are going to be. Like I had to deal with a lot of uncertainties when I went to Egypt because even the project that I had, it kept changing. Okay, um, really? Yeah, so just that kind of uncertainty, and I mean, I was okay with going to Egypt, even though I knew it would be very hot, but imagine going to a place where it might be very cold, because I know people went to like, you know, Russia or Kyrgyzstan or, you know, some of those very cold places. Yeah, and never, I couldn't do it. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right? 
I mean, things like that, that kind of uncertainty. What am I going to do? Where am I going to live? And I'm going to be a woman all alone. And, you know, you don't know how much support you're going to get from the embassy or the reload office. I got very lucky that the embassy was right there, mm-hmm. 10 minutes away from me. My reload was right there, 10 minutes away from me. But I know for other fellows, say, like, whoever was in Tunisia or Algeria, their reload was in Morocco. Right. Their reload was not even in the same country. You know, right, right, right. So that could be uh, that's a very like a situation where you could be very fearful. You know, like what am I gonna do all alone? Right. You make a valid point. I have believed uh, since my first experience living abroad that it takes a certain kind of person to be able right. to do that. Um, there are other people who thought that they could do it. Um, even my first time out, and they were hit with the isolationism and the, the loneliness. And then they would eventually just leave, you know, before yeah. their contracts even, you know, finished halfway through or even before even halfway through. It does wow. take, I think, a certain type of person, um, a certain type of mindset and ability. Right. Right. Like, like I said, like when I went to Cairo, it reminded me so much of India that I didn't feel like this was something completely new for me, you know? I felt like, yeah, I've seen this before. I've done this before. I'm okay with this. I can handle this, you know. Mm-hmm. But I can imagine somebody who's lived all their life in New Jersey, you know, and then going into this hot, dusty desert city, <laughs> you know, with traffic, like traffic that doesn't stop for anything and the pollution levels, you know, it's, it's crazy. So I can imagine somebody getting really saying, like, I'm not dealing with this, you know, this is too much. such a huge honor and and then the second thought was 
but will they accept me with the way I look mm-hmm. and the way I talk? Yes. And I, I talked to my reader about that several times, you know, that how do people think about me because I look more like them. You know, and I even told them, I said, look, I used to be in the line at the American Center in Delhi. I was a student in Delhi and I used to line up outside just like you line up now. And and when I said that, and I said, look at me, like now I'm representing the United States. I, I got a standing ovation at that point. <laughs> they were still have me. And I was so surprised. I was like, wait, I'm just telling you, like, I, I was so fearful of this. But the way they accepted me in Egypt was just amazing. Right. I mean, it was overwhelming. That's but I, that's, that's another thing that I was afraid of. I said, I don't know what they're going to think of me. And uh, I don't speak like CNN, you know. <laughs> I speak like whatever mixed accents I have now. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned it to my reader several times. And he just said, you got to stop thinking about this. Yeah, you're fine the way you are. Right. So he calmed me down. He, I just had a wonderful reader, I have to say. Oh, that's so great. I'm glad you had that experience. We, I'm sure you've heard um, maybe some other stories, you know, where... Our fellow alumni maybe didn't have such a great experience. Um, uh-huh. And I think sometimes it was probably because of what you said before. You were in the same city as your Rilo, and for others, uh-huh. they're so far away. Yes. Um, I, too, felt yes. like I was fortunate enough to have a nice relationship with my Rilo, even though um, George was in Tanzania and I was in Rwanda. Um, oh. I, had, I had a good relationship with the people at the embassy, I, with the people I communicated with, I felt. Um, so mine was good, but the predecessors maybe didn't feel so, and other people uh, might, maybe didn't feel so, but I felt so. So I guess it depends on your experience. Yes, and it depends on how you handle the situation, right? Very true. So it depends on your own attitude. Like like I told you when I went, they said, oh, sorry, you know, that project that you were supposed to come here for, it's not happening. I could have just you know, sat and cried at that point and said, so what am I doing here? You know, do I have to pack my bags and leave or what? But um, the Relo program assistant, she was Egyptian. She was just like, she just took care of me like a younger sister, you know. Mm-hmm. She would even come and stay with me in my apartment and she would say, don't worry, you know, it's fine. We're we working on this project and that project. Meanwhile, you go work at the American Center and, you know, Go help teach them to play Scrabble. <laughs> it was just, it was just a joy. It was just wonderful. They, they worked something out, and I just went along with it. You know, I said whatever works out. Yeah, it's fine. It's gonna go with the flow. Yeah. that's good. That's and that was a good yeah. attitude to have about it because it wasn't, it wasn't anything you could actually change. So no, eh, yeah, you couldn't change it. Just flow with whatever they have yeah. to do, I guess. And that, that's mm-hmm. an attitude that I carry. I'm pretty flexible. Um, and yeah, I can be. Frustrating at times, but I just go along with what with what works. <laughs> exactly, and and always be grateful. You know, like what a huge honor it was. You know, to I feel like that was my pinnacle. You know, of my teaching so far, just to be able to represent the U.S. to be part of TESOL there. Um, I gave the plenary at Nile TESOL when they had the annual conference. Oh, it was awesome. just so amazing. Yeah, it was an amazing. It thing is to an do. honor. It is an honor, and I, I, I feel so, um, and I felt so um, at that time uh, when I was in Rwanda. 
and in other programs as well um, that I was a fellow for a short time in Colombia, not with the English language program, but yeah, it was an honor uh-huh. to be a cultural yeah. ambassador for the United States. In this next segment, Natasha and I talk about racial and cultural identity, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris making U.S. history, and what it all really means. Woman, how do you feel uh-huh. with um, having the first um, woman be uh, Vice President-elect in the United States of America? <laughs> I feel like I'm I'm finally represented <laughs> mm-hmm. as an Indian heritage. Yeah. Uh, also, and she's very proud to say that in her speeches. So that makes me happy. Um, and again, I feel like uh, the possibilities are endless here. You know, I mean, Kamala could become vice president. I'm in Egypt representing the United States. Like for me, again, that's mind boggling. <laughs> Yeah. So, actually, then, uh, do you think that, uh, well, this is a, an obvious question, that it's taken too long for a woman to um, have such a position in this country? And- so, growing up in India, um, I grew up with, like, Indira Gandhi being the, pre- the prime right. minister yeah. for so many years. Mm-hmm. And then neighboring uh, Bangladesh had Sheikh Hasina. And then neighboring Pakistan had Benazir Bhutto, came and went several times. So we saw women, you know, in positions of power, women in standing for elections, women winning elections. So I, again, I never understood why it took so long here or why it was such an issue here. Yeah. Like, I, I didn't get that, you know, because for me it was normal growing up. So that was another thing. Final, you have a DEI session coming up in a couple of months. Oh, that's right, yes. Indian, I do. black, brown, other. Can you uh, explain uh, what that's about? Give a little, uh, I guess, synopsis of what your presentation will be about? Yeah, so, you know, this summer when Black Lives Matter movement really took off, you know, um, so on the news and on TV, we would often hear black and brown communities, black and brown communities, like this phrase, you know, and... We, like, I think as an Indian, I always thought of myself as brown, but I was told when I first came to the U.S. that if you're not white, you're black. So I said, okay, so I'm either perceived as black, though I, I don't really have, like, a connection with Africa or, you know, uh, I, I feel like I'm a different race, like my identity is different. So I, I always would think of myself as brown. So when that whole thing happened this summer, I, I went to my sons and I said, what do you think? Like, are we black or brown or is it just said in the same breath or is brown like the Latino community and are we not thought about it this way? And one of my sons, he said, no, no, we are not. We are not the brown community. That's the Latino community. And his friend said, who's also Indian, she said, no, no, we are. We are brown. <laughs> you know? And it was like, yes, we are the black and brown. We are the same as Latinos and, you know, Pakistanis, Indians, South Asians. We're all the same. If you're not white, then you're black or brown. And I, and I think in my mind, there was so much confusion. Like, 
who are we? You know, what is our identity? Do we all just get clubbed together? Or do we actually have a South Asian identity? Mm. And I think that's what I want to explore in, in my presentation. Wow. And I think Kamala Harris, like, mentioning that her, her mother's from India, yeah, that puts a whole different light on it. Like, it, it puts us on the global stage in the U.S., you know? Like, okay, right. she's actually saying that we don't have to hide behind... Are we black? Are we brown? Are we immigrants? Are we not? Like, are we the model minority? It's just very confusing. Like, how do you identify yourself? Yeah, that's interesting. Cause I remember um, having this conversation. I guess multiple times throughout my life, um, and uh-huh. I guess most and recently too, saying that when people say Asian, they are not talking about in this country. They're typically not talking about. Um, the uh, people who are from Southeast Asia. They're not talking about right. people with darker skin who are Asian. Right. They're not talking about people who are Indonesian. Certainly not the right. darker skin Indonesian. Not the people from Jakarta. Not the people from uh, uh-huh. Papua New Guinea. Uh, right. Not Indians. They're not talking about those. And I, and I used to always wonder why. Why do they only categorize Asians as either uh, Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, or Chinese? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, that's another thing. Like, where do we belong then? And if you're right Indian or if you say Indian, that, like a lot of people have asked me, like, which which nation are you? And I'm like, I'm not Cherokee or I'm not like Navajo or anything. <laughs> <laughs> see, see, there's so much confusion. Yes. There's no sense of identity. You know, and that's what I want to explore. And I, and I want to see if my children have it. You know, so I keep asking them, like, how do you feel? What do you feel? And they're like, mom, stop it. You know. <laughs> so this, this was never a discussion you had with your kids before? So what do, I, what do they I, mark I, on their exams, on their state exams? I don't know. I don't know what they mark, but I sometimes mark other Mm-hmm. Because if I do Asian, then like you said, it's like Japanese or Chinese. If I do, um, you know, I don't know what other options there are. Pacific Islander or like I'm none of those. Right. I don't have my identity there. Right. Like the most populous nation in the world and we don't have an identity. It's very funny. Yeah, it's interesting. So some, some, yeah, sometimes I write other or sometimes I write South Asian Indian, you know. So, yeah. Okay. Well, one last thing. One more minute. I would like for you to uh, shout out your podcast. (laughs) Yes, yes, I do have a podcast. It is called Chai and Chat. So Chai in in Hindi means tea, you know, Uh, and chat, of course, is just chatting. So it's, it's the idea that we're sitting and having our cups of tea and just chatting about ourselves. Uh, we interview somebody almost weekly, and uh, often it is women of Indian origin mm-hmm. who have, you know, who are doing different things here, which are, like, we just put out one podcast today, which is uh, a woman who runs a food truck in Texas. Oh, cool. Um, yes, another woman who is an artist, uh, another young woman in California, also of Indian origin, who has written a book about uh, a novel, like a young adult, adult novel. In, which is set in British India. So it's it's an interview of women who are doing different things and they've had diverse experiences, yet we all love our tea. Like most Indian people love tea 
And so we always talk about how they make their tea. You know, many people put ginger in their tea or cardamom or cinnamon. And we always have that kind of a question there just to connect us. You know, that tea is a connection. But we really try to explore how being Indian in America or being like different in America, being diverse in America, how has it affected their identity and the things that they do in life. So that's what it is about. It's called Chai and Chat. So yeah, listen in if you can. Okay, and that's, we can find that on Spotify, right? Spotify, Anchor, uh, Google Podcasts. Yeah, it's on eight different platforms. Okay. Well, Natasha, this has been wonderful. Oh, and same for me. Thank you so much. Thank you for being open and honest with this discussion. And I really do hope that someday in the near future, we'll be able to meet up again sometime, maybe at another uh, English language program event, or just by chance, maybe fate. Thanks again to Natasha Agarwald. What a wonderful guest. And please, Check out my TBL tidbit with Natasha, where we talk about gratitude. Also, don't forget to tune in to her podcast, Chai and Chat. You can find that on Spotify and several other platforms. Well, folks, this concludes this episode and our season of change. Join us next month as we transition from the season of change to an end of a tumultuous and historic year. Once again, I am your host, Daniel Harrison. Until next time, stay safe and stay sane.